At special times, believers in the Old and New Testaments believe that they ought to make covenants together vowing that they would obey King Jesus. Following in their footsteps, in 1638, Scottish Christians signed the National Covenant which rejected the enforcement of prelacy on the Presbyterian Church. When threatened to have these rights taken away, the Scottish Covenanters in 1639 united under the Blue Banner which read, For Christ's Crown and Covenant. As direct theological descendants of the Scottish Covenanters, the RPCNA still honors the Blue Banner for what it stands for, that Jesus is the only head and king of his church. The Blue Banter podcast's goal is to go about informing the reforming by introducing you to our pastors and under-shepherds of Christ's church. By listening to this podcast, you will have greater clarity on the blessings and challenges faced by each of our congregations. We pray that the Lord blesses you through this podcast for Christ's crown and his covenant. I want to welcome everybody again to another episode of the Blue Banter podcast, a podcast where we're seeking to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA, and in so doing, also to serve young and aspiring pastors by gleaning wisdom from men with ministry experience through these interviews. My name is Joe Smith. I'm the pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. My name is Aaron Murray. I'm the pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church here in the beautiful Marion, Indiana. And we are joined by Sean Anderson. And Sean, you are the pastor of Sycamore Reformed Presbyterian Church. You are the the mother of this congregation or or the Sycamore congregation uh, is the mother of Marion congregation. We were a church plant from you guys. So it's kind of fun to uh, be able to interview our uh, uh, pastor from our mother congregation. Sean also is the uh, podcast host of the um, Jerusalem Chamber podcast that goes through uh, paragraph by paragraph the Westminster Confession of Faith. Sean, my first question for you is how does it feel to know that you're about to be a host of the second most popular Reformed Presbyterian podcast? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Very good. Uh, right behind 3GT, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I love it. But uh, thank you for uh, taking the time out of your day to uh, join us on our, our podcast. Uh, we appreciate you having you on. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, happy to tune in from sunny Kokomo, Indiana, uh, that place where everybody wants to go. You know, I, I think Kokomo actually uh, has us uh, in Marion. Like, it's a pretty, your downtown is definitely more pretty than ours. And I think we both claim James Dean, but uh, I'll, I'll let the city ordinance, they'll, they'll fight about him, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, so our our first question for you, it's, uh, it is very um, distinctive to the RPCNA in some ways, but a number of years ago, you were on the uh, committee to kind of articulate for us what the mediatorial kingship of Christ is. So would you mind giving us kind of a concise summary of what the mediatorial kingship of Christ is and what are some of the applications that come from this doctrine? Yeah, um, actually, that 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 mediatorial kingship of Christ study committee is still uh, going. Um, and uh, what we what we did in, in giving you a, a long answer, uh, what we did was um, uh, spent a, 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 the first few years just studying uh, the doctrine of the mediatorial kingship of Christ um, from a, a historical theological perspective. And we actually wrote, um, uh, we put together, it was one guy who mainly wrote, but many of us 
added our own things, but uh, wrote a 120 page document on kind of a historical survey, historical theological survey of just the doctrine of the mutual kingship of Christ through the Reformed Presbyterian uh, branch of the church um, in, from Scotland into America. And um, so what is it? <clears throat> well, what we're talking about is um, mediatorial, referring to Christ serving as um, mediator between God and man. So this is the, the role he takes up as um the the messiah as the mediator uh, uh and so we we think often theologically about the threefold offices of christ uh mediatorial uh prophet mediatorial priest mediatorial king so this is just focused on one of those three aspects of his full mediatorial office but when we talk then very specifically about what do we mean by mediatorial king what we mean is that uh, as the uh, God-man uh, representing uh, his people and being given a, um, a mission to introduce and to advance his kingdom into the earth, uh, that he has been, as he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, both in heaven and in earth. Therefore, uh, as you go, make disciples of the nations, uh, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you. Uh, often when we hear mediatorial kingship, we think of political theology. Uh, we think very specifically about like, well, what's the civil magistrate's responsibility to um, King Jesus? And that's because we're thinking of passages like, um, you know, Psalm 2 and, uh, uh, and other various other passages, many other passages, really. Um, but let's be really clear that when we look at our confessional standards, what we're thinking about fundamentally is how it is that Christ is king uh, over all things for the sake of the church, for the sake of the church, for the sake of gathering and glorifying his church, his bride, his kingdom, which is the church. Now, there's a lot more I could say about that. Um, you know, you asked about application. I guess one more important, you know, who doesn't hold that, what I just said? Like, what Reformed church does not hold to that view? You know, OPC, they understand the mutual kingship of Christ in terms of Christ being king over his church. Um, the PCA, uh, the, the Dutch Reformed, uh, all, all the Reformed confessional churches have this understanding. Uh, what what we think, where, where the intramural... Uh, discussions and debates come in is uh, what is um, the responsibility of the magistrates to Christ the King. Um, and, and so we will make a distinction. We've historically made a distinction between the kingdom of uh, power and the kingdom of grace. Kingdom of power is Christ's authority over all things, uh, his dominion, his universal dominion over all things, uh, for the sake of the church. Um, so you can think about um, John 17, Christ's priestly prayer, where he's praying and he says uh, to the Father, you know, uh, now it is time to glorify your Son. You've given him authority over all things so that he may uh, gather the elect to himself. He may uh, bring to himself those whom you have given to him. 
Uh, and so there's a distinction, power over all things, kingdom of power, to bring the elect in, kingdom of grace, which goes into kingdom of glory when we get to heaven. Um, and I won't, I'm not going to draw that distinction right now. Um, so I, I hope that's really important. And if I could say just one more thing about that, Samuel Rutherford really helped me kind of uh, really uh, make some important distinctions that makes sense of this. You know, I've, I've wrestled over the years over the question, things like, you know, is Jesus the King of China? Is he the mediatorial King of China? uh, You think about that on the one hand, like my instinct would be like, yeah, of course he is. You know, he made China Chinese have responsibility to recognize him as King, but to say he's the mediatorial King, I would then start to, it would be pushed back. Well, is he the mediatorial priest of China? Because if he's the priest of China, doesn't that mean that he redeems them and he saves them? He inter- he's interceding for them in a redemptive way. Oh, yeah, that's a really that's a hard thing. That I don't want to say that he's the king of China, like in some type of salvific sense, as if they're all saved, or as if China is now the kingdom of God. Like that's the that's the church's designation. So uh, Rutherford says. You know, Jesus, having been put at the highest place, has authority over the demons. He's over the demons, but he's not uh, He's not the king of the demons. He's not saying I'm giving their directions, go here, go here, go, go create chaos, go, you know, do bad things. No, of course. And they will answer to him because he's the king of demons, but he's not, I'm sorry, because he's the king over demons, but he's not the king of demons. And in the same way, uh, he is the king over all magistrates, but how glorious is it when he becomes also the king of magistrates? And that's the, really the emphasis of Psalm 2. Before we always quote, you know, kiss the sun, there's that first part that says, you know, you kings and judges, you mix fear, which is a word for faith, mix faith with your your worship. And then kiss the son, pay homage to him in your office. So personally embrace him and publicly serve him in your office. I think those are important distinctions. Um, uh, Let me just stop there because I feel like I've kind of been rambling. No, that's good. Um, It's comforting for me somewhat and funny. I was laughing as you were saying this, just context for the listeners um, this was kind of funny when so Sean gave me my systematic theology two exam as I was coming through the Great Lakes Gulf Presbytery. And, and I remember my advisor was my pastor from Indiana, Ian Wise. And as I was in contact with him and said, hey, do you know who's given me my exams yet? Uh, he said, uh, Sean Anderson for systematics two. And at that time, it was Nathan Eshelman for church history, uh, though Nathan had to back out of that as he was called to be assistant clerk. And about two seconds after he followed up that text, he texted and said, it was nice knowing you. And uh, I think he knew that I was I was in for a grill job and not that not that Sean was mean to me, but it was a it was a good exam. And there was a season in my life where I feared Sean Anderson more than any (laughs) any other man on planet Earth. But he asked me that question of of mediatorial king of China. And my knee-jerk answer was uh, kind of what he just said his perhaps initially was, as he was thinking through that, was to say yes. And then he followed up with, the, is he the mediatorial priest of China? 
and I was thrown for a loop. And uh, I don't remember what was said after that, but Sean uh, was very gracious and and uh, sat with me that whole meal after that. And we talked about things and I've been very helped. And I took that that very distinction of of versus over back to seminary and was an evangelist for that distinction and how helpful it was in the kingdom of grace and power. I've preached on it uh, here and that distinction from Ephesians 1, 20 to 23 and, and numerous of the members just, it was like a light bulb going off. Uh, very helpful because once you do ask that question, like you asked, is he mediator or a priest over China? Uh, we don't want to go there. And so that, that of versus over distinction, super helpful to me. Um, so thank you for, for bringing that up. I had a note here. I was going to, going to force you to bring that up if you, if you hadn't, but, um, before Aaron may, may ask another question or two, I think another helpful distinction that I used in the sermon that I found helpful in my own life, uh, that, that if maybe you could just say a little about is the distinction between, uh, the essential kingship of Christ and the mediatorial kingship and the difference between those two. And I think even some, some disagreement can hinge um, with us and others on this as to where people will want to say, well, Christ is king over the nations in his essential kingship. But and I don't know if it's because they're lacking that of versus over distinction. Maybe that would be helpful for people. But um, just just give us a little bit on what what is the distinction between the essential kingship and the mediatorial kingship. And just uh, kind of how that's also a, a helpful distinction to make. Yeah, again, this belongs to the field of um, dogmatics or historical theology. Um, most reformers are going to agree on this, that uh, when we think about Christ and his uh, divinity, um, he is the, the eternal son of God uh, who has always had um, authority over all things. Um, as shared with the Father and the Spirit. And so, um, you know, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, um, there, there are moments, you know, sometimes people kind of scratch their heads and think, how is authority given to Christ if he already possesses all authority? Uh, and so um, what what is what Christ is designating there is the fact that he has entered into a mediatorial office in his um in his um representation for humanity in his humanity um not to not to take away the um divine authority that he has but to distinguish that uh in his humanity now like you know god has elevated a man above all of the angels uh and it is the man christ jesus and so that's a significant place. And, and what Jesus is saying is that he is going to share that throne with his people. Uh, and, and so, um, uh, but it's rooted in, in, in what he himself uh, was given. And why was he given this, this authority? He was not given this authority just because the father loved him, though the father uh, does love him. But he was given this authority because he merited it. Uh, he, um, by his perfect, perpetual personal obedience, uh, was the son who pleased the father well. And therefore, uh, he uh, could be entrusted with uh, this authority over all things to uh, save 
this church. And so the, this, the distinction then, you know, whereas we're saying uh, he is not only the king of uh, all things, but he's the king over all things. He's uh, sorry. Uh, I just, I just messed that up. He's the king over all things. He's the king of particularly um, uh, his church redemptively. Um, so sorry to bring that confusion, but, but the, if I could say it a little bit different in terms of this distinction, when we look at the confession, um, and this is the problem, you know, when you sit on a study committee for a few years, you just have way too much stuff in your head on this. <laughs> I'm probably saying way too much. That's um, good. I, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> when you think about the confession, the confession is saying, is speaking about the mediatorial kingship of Christ in relationship to his redemptive work. So it falls within the realm of soteriology, if I could say it that way. We're focusing on salvation. Uh, somewhere along the way in later church history, we start talking about mediatorial kingship. We started focusing on the Christ aspect. So we started focusing on Christology, the office of Christ. Uh, and there, and now, so now we're thinking about how in his office, he has this, both this twofold authority, one over all things and one over his church. And so when you start to change the theological categories, um, but it's not really clear you're doing that, you begin to talk past one another. Uh, and so I've tried to bring out all of these careful distinctions. I, not me personally. I have uh, followed in the footsteps of those who are very good systematicians uh, to try and bring back um, these categories and these distinctions to try so that we're not talking past one another. So we can hopefully get mo more on the same page. Yeah, I found, uh, sorry, I just keep blanking in Aaron, if you have anything after this, but just something that was helpful for me also in a, just kind of vindicating and confirming the of versus over distinction uh, from Ephesians 1, 20 to 23 is the metaphor of the body. Uh, we can understand that um, he is the head over all things, but he's only the head of the church because the church alone is that holy nation, uh, which is his body. Obviously, the nation, the geopolitical nation of China uh, should submit to him, but as a political nation, they are not his body in the way that the church is. And so uh, he can only be the head of one body, right? He's not a monster. He doesn't have multiple bodies. He has one body, even though he's he's the head over uh, all nations. Aaron, you uh, you got anything on this? Well, um, so I'll throw this out there, and then, Joe, you can go to the next question if you want. But uh, before I do, you know, Joe talked about how he uh, was nervous about you giving him uh, the his second <laughs> systematics exam. I remember I was, you know, doing kind of a second round of candidating um, before um, the Senate of last year where you examined me. Um, and it was for my exegesis paper. And I got a text from Joel Hart, who was my uh, advisor. And he said, you know, Sean's doing your uh, reviewing your exegesis paper. And I died inside. <laughs> it, was, it was very difficult to uh, focus on candidating. So you're kind of like the uh, the Baba Yaga, the boogeyman of the students in the, in the wow. GLG. <laughs> I, you guys are embarrassing me, but you know, it's, it's good. It's, I need to be more humble. So this yeah. is good. <laughs> but, uh, it, 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 I have a, one follow-up regarding the mediatorial yeah. kingship. Um, so historically, why is there such an emphasis on Christ as king over the church, as opposed to um, what was being taught during the days of the reformers? Just, just for people who may not be familiar with 
kind of the the emphasis that we put on Christ as King over the church, as opposed to what? Well, you know, uh, it's again, there's political theology. So what is the role and duty of the magistrate? And does that change if the magistrate is Christian? Um, Or what's the role of all magistrates? Um, um, And then, and then what if that magistrate were to lead his people into more um, explicitly Christian expression? These are important questions, and they were being asked for um, um, a long time uh, post Reformation, uh, you know, into the Reformation and, and through it. Because prior to that, um, you just had kings and 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 popes just fighting with each other over who was who had more authority. Uh, when we realized that you know we, that was the wrong tree to bark up, then then it started asking. We started asking new questions. And and so sometimes there was intersection with this theology of Christ the King, and sometimes there wasn't. Um, and uh, I think uh, it's a really complex question you ask, you know, when you think about his, um, history, because you have to also remember that you have different theological trajectories. Um, you know, you have uh, more of the the continental perspective. You have more of the British Isles perspective. You get into America, and now these two things are kind of uh, maybe interacting a little bit more than, um, not that they weren't interacting over in Europe, but just in a different way. Like they didn't have to live together. Uh, we had to live together and work through those things together in a different way. Um, and so I'm, I'm not sure if I have a, a great answer. What I do see is uh, I do see some theological trajectories that kind of coexist. Um, just like, you know, one of those um, four views or five views books on sanctification or whatever. I think there's there are three views predominantly over, say, um, you know, kingdom theology, Christ kingship and the kingdom theology. We try to lay this out. Um, in our little pamphlet, Jesus is King, uh, which we were not trying in any way to um, mimic uh, Kanye West, by the way, but it, we, we did a really good job of not trying to like, it's like, we're not he, he cool enough. You. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. He, that's funny. I think, I think actually he did come out with it first and I, and it was so funny. It was like, we were not trying to do this, but somehow we ended up on the, the same design. Anyway. Um, yeah. The essential thing is uh so you can have a one kingdom view like christ is the king over everything like he just he is the king over everything um and the church becomes one institution among many so you have like the state you have the church you have the the school the the, you know the the academy um and 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 christ's kingdom needs to be pressed in all these different areas and the church is just one of those many areas um you know that that's kind of uh Kuyperian view, whether it's Kuyper's view himself, I think there's reason to believe it is, but it's a Kuyperian view, and and it often gets connected today with more of the um, transformationalists, cultural transformationalists. So, you know, all things Moscow, uh, one sound a lot like One Kingdom, and then you have the other side of what I will I'll call the other ditch, and that one is the um, radical Two Kingdom view, which is to try and really separate anything first table from the social sphere of responsibility or duty. So, you know, yeah, of course, 
you know, honor authorities and don't kill and don't commit adultery and don't steal, how those have um, neighborly responsibilities. But the magistrate should not be touching, you know, have no other gods before me, keep the Sabbath day holy. That belongs exclusively to the church, that, that kind of view, which is totally not our reformational. That's not the reformed doctrine. Um, then you have, I think, the, that which is best articulated in the reformed confessions. So I think we're actually coming back to that. We're not the we're not the arbiters and protectors of the mutual kingship of Christ. I say we as in like the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Uh, we've been confused like other people. Anyone who's like, hey, kingship of Christ, we're like, yeah, we like you. Uh, but we're not really being careful. Now I think we're trying to be more careful. And it's the confession, again, that one beautiful stream that's keeping us on um, mixing metaphors here, I guess, a straight path. So uh, I, I and I've already articulated what the confession I think says. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Just be, before I transition to the next question, what what what's what do you think still is uh, the best book um, out there? If if a member listening wanted to dive deeper into uh, this doctrine, uh, I do you, is Crown and Covenant have your guys's booklet? Yeah, is that something? Oh. Yeah, so Jesus is King is kind of just a. Uh, the, the 20 page introduction. Right. Um, and I, we wrote that to try it's, I wouldn't call it the popular level, but we tried to be as popular level as we could. Uh, but if you read that along with, I still think that Symington, Symington, however you want to pronounce his last name, uh, William Symington, if you understand that and then go and read, you're like, Oh, wow. I like there, like there's subtle differences. Like when, when Symington is talking about the, the, kingdom of power he's talking about the universal dominion of christ as opposed to the mediatorial kingship that he talks about over the church so he's even trying to draw these distinctions out and if you understand that it's it's a great read cool cool so yeah pick up uh jesus is king from crown and covenant and then william simington or simington however one wants to pronounce it uh his book as well mediatorial kingship messiah Messiah the the Prince. prince thank you Yep. Thank you. Um, all right. Transitioning now, um, as I told you kind of before we hopped on here, I remember being helped by uh, the Jerusalem Chamber episode on Westminster Confession 1.8 and the issues of uh, text and translation, manuscripts and various Bible translations. Um, and so we were just and, and then you guys also had that follow up interview with I think is it See the Old Testament professor at Puritan, Michael Barrett. Yep. Yeah, uh, that was that was really helpful as well. Having him come on and talk about that. So I mean, we're just we're just in a world today uh, to where you could have anywhere from uh, two to three, maybe even five translations going on in your congregation, and some of them could be King James or New King James, some ESV, NASB. Uh, NIV, maybe even whatever. And so not only are the English translations slightly different, but there can be some places where uh, passages are are different. Something may be in the New King James or King James that's not in, or maybe it's in the margin of the ESV or the NASB. And so I just remember being really helped by that episode myself uh, and your guys' conversation of it. Like I was telling you, we didn't ask Kyle or Nathan this when we had them on and so thought that we would ask you 
uh, just how you could you could start out by talking telling us how Sean thinks about this, but but how should you know, or what, what would be wise counsel to both young pastors and members um, in thinking about uh, the the biblical text and translation issues? Uh, how how do you handle that? How how is it ideal to handle that pastorally and and even from the pulpit? You know, if if you're a New King James or King James guy or even an NAS or ESV guy, you're preaching a passage and you know there's going to be differences in some people's translations of, of whole blocks of text. Uh, just what are some ways that you've handled that or, or think is a wise way to handle that? Yeah, it's it's an important question. Um, and uh, I, I think I, I always like to start with um, consensus, you know. Uh, so when you have thousands of copies of the Bible, from from various family uh, manuscript traditions, and eighty five percent of of those manuscripts agree a hundred percent. Eighty five percent of them agree to hundred percent. There's no other uh, manuscript tradition like that in the world. Um, you know, take the works of Plato. You know, I think they have like what like nine copies, uh, ancient copies. And they don't even agree up to eighty-five percent with 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 that kind of accuracy. Um, that's significant. So uh, you know, do some. You can do some work on the reliability of the of the scriptures. Um, I I uh, I fall personally. I think Michael Barrett was really helpful in helping me think through the um, majority text argument. Um, and the, and I won't go through all of that now. I'll just tell you that you can go to pretty much any New King James uh, Bible and open up the front and the introduction to the New King James lays out what the majority text is. You, uh, Michael Barrett's a great art um, uh, interview to go to and listen to. Um, uh, I, I, you know, it includes the Texas Receptus family. And I am. Um, and I think that's important. Um but, uh, you know, the, we have to appreciate that there does need to be some degree of, of um, lower textual criticism consideration. Um, and I think it was uh, John Murray who did who wrote an article on the Westminster Assembly and, and Calvin and their lower textual criticism. And uh, it was a fantastic article um just demonstrating that you know uh, these you know it wasn't it wasn't as flippant as luther being like i don't think this should i don't i'm not sure that james should be in the bible <laughs> you know but it but it was much more careful in terms of thinking about what do we do when we find some discrepancies in the text um so i think uh you know i think we can uh our, our faith needs to be informed by um some of that lower textual criticism um anything that's going to lead us to doubt the scriptures or the authority scriptures we should stay away from it's not it's not it's not worth the time of the people in the pew um and if you're going to read that as a minister you should be reading it with with uh other guys uh because we need accountability and encouragement in that uh, it's just too easy to go off into unbelief. It's too easy um, thinking that we're smarter than the Lord. Um, but let me get really practical. So, so those are just some like 
that's not like a, that's not an essay. What I just said, that's more like bullet points of ideas. I, you know, I teach a class on uh, biblical hermeneutics in the church and it's, it's like a year class. It's not like a short class. It's, it's in, you know, it's, it's intense. And part of it is like the history of how we got our, uh, the scriptures and, you know, what, what is the Septuagint? What is the, um, Apocrypha. What are these other things um, around the scriptures? Um, and and I don't, you know, I don't think people appreciate that, you know, the medieval church um, uh, is is the is the Vulgate, and and often there the people were early early in the early Reformation trying to sort out translations from the Latin into other translations. Um, that's a problem that's problematic so getting back to the greek and hebrew is important uh which they eventually did and which jerome did originally honestly uh, and, to, and to produce the vulgate so i don't know i could i could say a lot about that but i feel like again that's where i have like too many things in my head to say and i, I want to get really practical um i remember uh, uh having a a greek professor who seemed to <laughs> almost always uh um tell us the problems of the english translations in front of us more than like just as much as he would teach us greek he was always like criticizing this or that translation and you know and, and then we'd say like well what you know what english translation do you want to use and he goes well it depends what text and what what book of the bible what chapter what verse and i'm like okay to me that was a little bit like man you're really promoting some skepticism into the English translations. Um, uh, I think that, uh, you know, when you, when you look at dynamic equivalent on the one hand, trying to communicate what the text means versus uh, a, uh, a formal equivalence, trying to communicate what the text says um, that even the genre is served better by by different equivalencies. So, in other words, um, I tell the congregation like, if you're reading poetry, you should move more towards the the dynamic equivalent translations, just as a practical understanding of because they're trying to help you understand the poetry. You're going to miss some of the idioms; they're going to go way over your head. But if but the dynamic equivalents are going to try and help you understand what the text means. Um, and then, you know, and, and, and it's, as long as you understand it's, it's going to be loose with the translation, um, you know, have, have something that's more formal along right with the dynamic and read them side by side, read your NASB right next to your new living translation or your NIV or, you know, um, but if you're going to read like at the epistles, you should definitely go with more formal equivalents. Because that's more theological and it's helping you think through things um, propositionally. You don't want a dynamic equivalent. You want to understand like even the prepositions are important. Um, so that's where you use more of your uh, King James, New King James, NASB. And then, you know, with history, I think it's it depends on how like, are you trying to do like an overview? You want to know the the big picture or you want to get into the, into the, the text itself. That's going to determine it. So I'm even trying to help people think through what translations to use depending on what they're reading. 
you know, I, I think those are some just some of the things that we we do. We use the NASB in as our pulpit Bible. That's one I inherited. It wasn't my decision. I'm more, uh, you know, I, uh, I probably lean more towards New King James. But uh, when those pass, when those English discrepancies or variants come up, I'm happy to talk about them as opposed to shy away from them because I know people in the pew are going to be using ESV. They're going to be using at New King James. You know, we have a family who uses King James, so. I need to help them sort through that too. Um, and I think one of the worst things is uh, when these guys, these translations are taking words out as opposed to the NASB, at least putting stuff in brackets or the new King James, which are putting notes like, well, this is in this family and this is in that family. I think that's just more honest. So anyway, those are some things I would say. Yeah. I like to things. avoid the, uh, the whole textual issue. I just preach from the message, you know, <laughs> Uh, um yeah you should see what our testimony says about paraphrases uh, use with great caution uh-huh. and never in worship but uh-huh. anyway yeah. uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, joe do you have a follow-up on that no i think that i think that was helpful uh you did end up touching on the you know kind of how you get at it from the pulpit i think i think like you were saying there is that fine balance and i remember david Whitler telling us that um, I don't remember if it was in class or informal conversation, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about, you know, the meaning of the original underneath the uh, English translation or to, to say, you know, it could be translated this way. Uh, th- those things can be helpful and fine, but to, to do stuff so much or to cast doubt on the Bibles that people are reading in their day-to-day lives, like you're saying, doing what that Greek professor did, just constantly kind of casting doubt on the translations. Um, I agree with you. I just think is is unhelpful, uh, does not serve for edification. And so I, I'm not a fan of it. But but I was glad to hear you say, too, that you at least do address um, textual uh, variants from the pulpit, at least in a way, like how 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 one addresses each one uh, may be dictated by the, the, the variant itself, uh, by the knowledge of the congregation. All sorts of things can come into exactly how any given variant would be um, discussed from the pulpit. But I was glad to hear you say that you do address them because uh, people are going to notice it and people are going to wonder and, and they're looking <laughs> to you to, to, to answer that. And so whether you do it very briefly and, and surface level, but I, some, it's something, I mean, cause they're hearing it when you're reading it, they're looking down saying that it's pretty obvious when it's not just a translation issue. Like most, you know, you can follow along in the ESV if somebody's reading from the new King James and for the most part be like, okay, yeah, that's, that's saying the exact same thing. But when you get to an actual variant, I mean, it's like pretty clear that it's like, no, that that's not the exact same thing what's going on here. And so, I, I am a fan of at least addressing that in some degree uh, from the pulpit because people are wondering about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think um, again, they're, they're important issues and I don't want to take away from it and people are trying to cast doubt. And I think we need to um, be able to speak to some of those issues to very, to various degrees. We should be able to speak to those issues. Um, but I also think we need to remember like this is, um, this is the wisdom of God that leads to salvation. 
And uh, people are saved by reading the NIV and they're saved by reading the King James and, um, and, and everything in between. And, and I, not that the NIV is probably the end, but the point is, is that, you know, people are saved. Like the, the spirit of God does speak in and by his word, even uh, when there's some of those mumbles and trips and stuff on the human end of it. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, and one thing when it comes to you know translations, you, you read through the New Testament, whichever version you're using from whichever text tradition you're using, you know, Paul often quotes from the Septuagint which is a translation. And so even if it's not in the original language, like the Lord uses the translation of his scripture to bring his people to himself. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. Um, so when it comes to the, these text things, I know that they can kind of be hot button issues, particularly um, for reform folks, because we like to debate things. And, you know, we need to have an opinion on it, but we don't need to unnecessarily bloody people over it. Um so the Lord redeems us and he uses his word uh, to do so. So I say, praise God to that. Moving on then to our, uh, our next question, um, just when it comes to um, teaching God's people, teaching the word, uh, you know, you have, uh, and many churches do have a Sunday school or Sabbath school, whichever you uh, prefer to call it, or, um, you know, not all of us have a formal uh, evening service like Joe, you know, you and I both have kind of informal teaching times. Um, what is the uh, place and importance of having a teaching program like that, um, whether it's on the Lord's Day or, or midweek? And um, regarding, you know, Sunday school or afternoon services, um, what's what's the pastor's role um, in these things? Well, I think um, the, the the pastor, along with the elders, have responsibility to oversee all of the teaching ministry that's going on in the church, for sure. Um you know, I I also think that uh, you want to be intentional in um, uh, supporting the what's going on at home. The discipleship that's going on at home needs to be supported by the church. And sometimes, um, you know, there's there's churches coming in different levels of understanding, different levels of maturity, different levels of ability in terms of discipling. And so uh, you want to have something that's not going to take the place of, but just really encourage and provide even some tools for people at home uh, who need them, especially who need them. So um, what we, you know, our Sabbath school program has a skeleton and it's basically a four-year rotating program. And every fall, we're focusing on biblical categories, like like lessons right out of the scriptures. In the winter, we're focusing on theological themes and topics. Uh, in the spring, we're focusing on church history. And in the summer, we're focusing on discipleship and Christian life. And um, and and so they're getting just a regular diet uh, of all these different emphases. Now, there's our six to eight-year-olds, um, uh, nope, sorry, our nine, uh, I have to think about nine to 12 year olds, they go through a survey class. So they, that all they do is the Bible, uh, for their, their next, you know, their four years. That's all they do. Um, so we want to make sure they're really grounded in the scriptures and we pick nine to nine to, um, 12 because they're at the reading level. They can, they can engage scripture. They can have their own, uh, private worship time, 
uh, and these kinds of things. So how to use the Bible, how to read the Bible, use it at home, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, even our 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 13 to 17 year olds, we're now taking them uh, in depth in some in some key books with key doctrines. So they go through the whole book of Romans. Uh, they go through um, John, the Gospel of John, in two uh, two quarters, not just one. They're going through Philippians, um, and and then they're going through a worldview class. You know, uh, uh, the the covenant of communicant membership. They go through all of that. So, uh, and then church history, which is a, a great thing that I don't see a lot of people emphasizing. Um, so that's our our. And then in the summertime, everybody comes together. So our discipleship and Christian living theme is always intended to engage all the levels, um, children to adults. So um, uh, that's our particular Sabbath school program. And I think it's important to have, it doesn't have to be exactly that, but we want to have a good diet of many different things. You know, if it's just Bible and you're missing that church history piece, um, that it's like almost like God, you see God working until uh, the last apostle dies. <laughs> we want to see the Holy Spirit continuing to advance the kingdom of Christ. Um, you know, so, and we want also the language of the church, the grammar of the church, that theology is really important. So, you know, our theology is all rooted around things like the catechism, apostles, creed, 10 commandments, Lord's prayer, that kind of stuff. Um, that's our Sabbath school. I think it's really important. I can say something about our evening and our evening is just simply that, um, uh, you know, <laughs> now I'm going to be super vulnerable here, but here it is. <laughs> when, I, when I first got out of seminary, you guys know what that's like. Uh, you get out of seminary, you go to, you go to serve the church. I just said, look, I, I anticipate being a counseling pastor as well as a preaching pastor. I anticipate being a teaching pastor, I don't think that I can really produce two sermons a week at the same quality. Um, and, and and I'll admit that there's guys who can do that and they can do it well, and I'm just not one of them. So what I would like to do is an evening teaching service. And it's a service because there are acts of worship that are being done in that service. We have a half hour prayer meeting. We're singing consecutively through our Psalter. Uh, so we we know all of the selections. Um, but then we have a half hour study and it can be something in the Bible. It can be something, uh, something out of a book. Um, you know, it, any of the elders can take on that, that study as well, if I have to be out of town. And so it's really, uh, flexible that the congregation can ask questions and engage in the same way, not in the same way they would like in a morning service. And, uh, and so people really, um, enjoy that. Uh, and I've done many, many different things. I use the PowerPoint because people are more visual, visual learners. It just helps keep them engaged. Um, so that's what we do there. Uh, and I'll just say one more thing. And that is, you know, we also have fellowship meals every single week, whether morning or evening, we think it's important to keep the doors of the church open so that we can, uh, as the, um, Heidelberg talks about in the fourth commandment, we can frequent the house of God on the Lord's day, um, it's hard enough um, for me and my um, and my sinfulness to, you know, be distracted in the Lord's day. But if I'm with other people, it helps me connect. So whether it's Sabbath school, morning worship, evening worship, fellowship meals, 
um, sometimes getting together and pray, sometimes getting together and just seeing, just having the doors of the church open and being available is, I think, really a wonderful way of promoting, <laughs> promoting communion with God the whole day. Yeah, Sean, I'm similar to you. If you're being vulnerable, I'll be vulnerable. We're all just going to have a, you know, a cry fest together. <laughs> uh, I, I do find it challenging to do uh, two sermons in one week. Um, I've done it before, but like you said, the quality goes down and I just, it, it, you know, other responsibilities kind of go through the wayside. So what we do um, is we do uh, prayer and pancakes in the evening. So we'll get together and we'll just have pancakes and eggs um, for the first half hour. And then we'll do some um, psalm favorites. Um, I'll read through one of the questions in the larger catechism on uh, prayer. Right now, we just started kind of the treatise on the Lord's Prayer. And then we just pray together. So it's kind of like an extended family worship kind of a thing on, on the evenings. Um, and I, I I really enjoy it. I benefit from it. Um, but it does kind of help, like you're saying, uh, protect the Lord's Day, um, keeps the doors of, the, of Zion open, as it were. Yeah. And these are means of grace. And mm-hmm. it's, you know... Um, you know, it's it's not less holy because it's not a worship service. I mean, some might think that it is, but you know, we are together uh, as the church uh, meeting with God. So, yeah, Joe, stop looking down on us as you do two <laughs> sermons a week. <laughs> Joe's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I just don't even respond to him anymore. Well, Sean, th- thanks for that. That was that was helpful on um, kind of your philosophy of teaching in the church. Um, and and so, just kind of our last major question, and this is the one that we've asked every every single guy, and we plan to continue to, um, as it is a question about the primary means of grace. And so, what is your philosophy of preaching? And just kind of by that, we we mean, you know, how do you preach, and and perhaps why do you preach that way, or just your thoughts on that? Maybe your philosophy of preaching is developed over time. Um, and then, kind of uh, with that, also then, just what what in a, a nutshell does your sermon preparation look like? You know, from the time you sit down uh, to the time you know it's it's pulpit ready. And then also we like to ask guys, you know, what do you take into the pulpit? You know, are you a full manuscript guy, a no notes guy, or somewhere in between? Preaching is preaching is uh, God's uh, ordained means of speaking to and addressing the world. Uh, it is within the context of Him meeting, particularly with His people. But it is a word that is declared publicly. It's not a, a word that is declared um, simply in internally or in house. But the whole world, you know, all of Kokomo is invited to come and hear God speak to them. Um, and so, and so, of course, there is that evangelistic aspect to it. But the but that's not the most important thing to um, you know to be evangelistic. The most important thing is for God to bring glory to himself, for God to make himself known in the earth, because that is the kind of God that we serve, one who condescends. Uh, Particularly, I think that the scriptures would declare that um, uh, it is uh, Christ who comes and speaks to us by in and by his word and spirit. Um, I, I remember the first time I understood, you know, 1 Corinthians 10, to be teaching that um, in our present preaching, Christ speaks, you know, how can they believe in him whom they heard and how will they hear him? 
if there's not a preacher. I, and so, you know, Christ is actively speaking to, uh, he's making that call. He's speak and he's speaking to his people. Uh, he's speaking to them, um, uh, words of teaching and confrontation and correction and, uh, instruction in righteousness. Um, <clears throat> And so the word uh, is not just a, it's not a lesson. It's not like a, just a study. It is um, God coming and addressing his people. And so it comes with power. You know, uh, um, Paul says to the Thessalonians, you know, you understood that this was not just the words of men. This is the the words of, of God. And, and it comes by the spirit and it changes people from the inside out. And so, um, so what is, you know, um, my role as a preacher um, I am, if you want to use the, uh, the language of, um, the word of God piercing the hearts of men, you know, my job is to sharpen the arrows as sharp as I can make them, but it's the Holy Spirit who, who shoots those arrows and directs them where he wills. Um, and so what that means then is that, um, I'm not just speaking to one person. There's a whole congregation I have to be thinking about. Uh, and I think sometimes in Reformed churches, um, the people who get most neglected uh, is not necessarily the unbeliever. I think that we do call unbelievers to faith in Christ, but it might be the children. And so I make sure, I make it a habit to explicitly say children and to speak to them at least two, three, five times in a sermon. Um, and one of our elders will say that when I speak to the children, I speak to everyone because they all know everyone's like perking up. Oh, what's he going to say? You know? Um, so uh, I, I, one one more thing that was uh, impressionable in my thinking of preaching. And again, these are just kind of bullet point thoughts. This is the way I probably, I hope I preach more uh, essay style than, than this one. <laughs> <laughs> but um uh Lloyd Jones um was speaking or was writing about preaching and he was actually talking about Jonathan Edwards uh and his view of of preaching in terms of the job of the minister what's my job and and he said you know your job is not to no, Edwards now through Lloyd Jones your job is not to just make the truth clear um it is but your job is to make the truth real. And, and that, um, I've just, that stayed with me, um, that I want to communicate in a way, I don't think this means that you have to be like verbose and just, you know, I mean, I have, you know, I, I'm not a guy who preaches like with fire in the belly. Um, I'm more of like a guy who tries to persuade and reason. And and just talk with you the way I would, in some sense, hopefully with more authority. But you know the way I would talk with you in any context. If I'm excited, I will get excited, and if I'm, you know, um, somber, I'm going to be somber. But but the point is, is that um, I, I really want to communicate with how I say things too. I want I want to preach in faith, so that you understand this is real. Um, and I, I think that's a really important key that, like I said, has stuck with me. How do I prepare? <laughs> um, typically, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the sermon. Um, 
I don't know, Monday morning, like, you know, it's, it's, and I've just come off of whatever it is Sunday and I'm thinking, okay, how is this going to connect next? Sometimes I'm already thought about that, but um, yeah, maybe I should do it like that. I tend to preach out of books and not just, you know, um, thematically, I'm not Spurgeon-esque in hardly any way. Um, um, in that I don't just preach random texts nor, uh, or the things that are touching me personally and my own devotion life. Um, uh, though often those things carry through, uh, nor do I use the text as a platform to just talk about whatever I want to talk about Spurgeon. Um, but rather, uh, uh, I am, um, thinking about like, what does this chapter mean and how, how am I going to communicate the parts of this chapter? I, I tend to think maybe a little bit more logically in that way. Um, so I might look at a chapter and be like, oh, this is like six sermons. Um, and 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 then it may end up being eight. And once in a while, oh, drop to five. But most of the time, it's, it's more than less. Um, I tend to, you know, the whole idea of preaching one point, um, I don't typically do that. Um, I mean, I want to have a theme and I want to carry out that theme. Um, and I want my sub points to connect with that theme. But I think that the, the whole counsel of God is way too deep to have just one point. And, and, and have you ever had, you know, you guys have been in the ministry for a little bit. Have you ever been preaching and afterwards you're talking with someone and they're like, man, I really liked when you said this. And I'm like, I didn't say that. That was the Holy Spirit. Like, I was, you know, I'm like, that's a really good point. Actually, I wish. Yeah, I was yeah. you, know? Um, you know, that's the, that's the God interacting with his people through his word. But the point is, is that, you know, I think that if I'm kind of more, if I have multiple things to point out from the text, I think he's going to take the ones he wants to, to the right people and, and meet them where they're at. So I'm not saying I don't have like a thesis, but I am saying that I tend to preach more broadly than just this one point idea. Um, I take I I don't take a manuscript, nor do I take a an outline. I take something kind of in between the two. Um, my sermon, uh, you know, what ends up being like 50, 45, 50 minutes of preaching is for me is like six pages. If I have more than six pages, I'm like, I'm not going to get through this in 50 minutes. Um and it's it looks like my main points with subpoints and um you got to start with the outline the outline is the key and then sometimes i don't know you know more flesh comes on that you i didn't even write down um but it's it, it's it, it's got, i got to have the skeleton and then what ends up happening in the pulpit is a little bit more organic if i can say it like that not that i'm unprepared at all but just that you know sometimes things I think I, I, I do believe that the spirit really helps the preacher. Like there's, I, I, I'm not impressed with my preaching at all, but I am, I am often um, taken aback by how clearly I was able to communicate something that wasn't so clear, like what, before I got up there. And I'm, and I'm just saying, I say, if, if that was clear, it's because of Holy spirit, anything that's muddy here, that's all me. Okay. Okay, so those again are just some ideas that I I have in terms of preaching. No, that's good. That was um, at least for me. That was like uh, music in my ear because I've grown to not be a a one point person at all. 
you're you're the only one I've ever kind of heard articulate kind of my own philosophy of preaching, which is to, in a sense, I just want to say what the text says. Uh, whatever it says, that's what I want to say. And, and that is kind of more of a shotgun method. But my experience has kind of been what yours is, is you are talking to a varied audience and, and not that not that one point preaching can't, in a sense, accomplish the same thing with with numerous people. But it is fascinating. And, and we're doing sermon discussion uh, right now as Sunday school. We, we have rotation. And, and right now in our quarter, we're in sermon discussion. And it's the, I've noticed the same thing with you is usually when it happens, somebody will say something about something I said. But like what they drew out from what I said is like way better than what I was even thinking about what I meant by it or something, you know, and I'm just like. And it is, but then somebody else will say something else, you know, and and so, yeah, I, that 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 was that was great to me. And then, like you've said too, I mean, I've just become more convinced over time. You know, there's been times where I'm going into the pulpit and I just don't feel ready at all, and I'm just praying vigorously, and and the Spirit answers, and it's just, uh, it is wonderful. You're right. It's 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 not like any sort of other lecture or you know speaking opportunity. It's it is a, a real event where the spirits at work. Um, so that was that was good. Any any thoughts on that, Aaron? Before I get to the the mystery theological question. <laughs> nope, I think everything's been covered. I, I do feel more comfortable <laughs> teaching than preaching. Do you? Yeah, uh, I, I feel is... more comfortable. I feel like yeah, and I and and I and I, I I don't feel help necessarily in the same way. Mm. Um, but I feel like I can maybe like I can be me differently. Mm. Like I mm. think it's really important. I really want to communicate. I want to get out of the way when I'm preaching. Mm. Mm. Um, anyway. yeah, with, with teaching, you can kind of let your hair down. Well, some of us yeah. can let our hair down. <laughs> yeah. I can let my beard down. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. I, I, I think you're right. I think, I think I feel the, feel the same way when it comes to that. Uh, not, not near the, the pressure uh, and the, the weight of the moment, uh, though you're still handling divine truth, but there just is something different about the preaching moment in public let, worship. Let me ask you guys this actually, before you, you go on, because I was thinking about this today regarding the difference between teaching and preaching. And, and for me, I feel much more of the, the one point kind of sniper rifle approach in the preaching, but in the teaching, I feel much more at liberty to kind of take a shotgun approach. So for example, um, you know, we're going through Joshua right now in our midweek Bible study, and we're kind of going through the division of the land, which isn't exactly the most stimulating read. Um, so we're kind of taking it in bigger portions, bigger chapters. And so there's, there's much more of a, Oh, look what's happening over here. Look at the story with Caleb. Look at the story here with the whole daughters. Look at the story, you know, X, Y, Z. And I feel like, that's more appropriate to do a shotgun approach. Whereas with the scripture or with the preaching, um, you know, the word is living and active. So there's so much that you could talk about. So you could legitimately take that shotgun approach. Um, but I find when I'm trying to, if I do that in my preparation, my mind is just as scattered as maybe the um, bird shot is. Um, so I, I don't know if that makes sense if you want to interact with that, but I kind of find it myself kind of on a different, different end here when it comes to the preaching versus the teaching. Yeah. You know, um, like I said, I want to have a common theme. I don't want the things that I say so disconnected. Like, you know, here's a bunch of points and they're not, but, but they're not connected in any way. Uh, I want, I, I need to do the hard work of trying to figure out the connection of, 
of a lot of things. You know, you think about this. Um, you 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 can you could go through a systematic theology, go to the index, go to the scripture references, and and look at all the different stuff that are pulled out of all these different scriptures, right? Um, but it would be it's not. I mean. You know, well, you're in anthropology, you're in Christology, you're in soteriology, and they're all referencing the same passage. Or, or, you know, you're going through chapter one, verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four, and then they're like all in these various different. So this one's the verse one's anthropology, verse two is Christology, verse three is, you know, okay, I, I, so I'm just saying there's a lot to draw out of the word, both in not only its meaning, but its significance. So I do need to be disciplined like you're saying to try and make it all connected and and i and i, I didn't mean to communicate um when I, I don't want to just preach one point that i don't want to have all all everything i say connected mm-hmm. um but uh but at the same time um i think that you know whether i'm going to whether I'm going to see that this truth touches our our humanity, it touches Christ and His humanity, and it and uh, it, and it touches some aspect of you know our glorification or something, you know. The, so there's three different uh, um, emphases while I'm still threading it together with this doctrine, right? And someone might just focus much more on the Christology and not really think much about the anthropology. And I'm saying to them, that's okay. Like, uh, you know, because th- that's the Holy Spirit seemed to be impressing this aspect on, uh, on your own heart more. Uh, that that's how, that's how I mean it. And so, um, yeah, I, but I, I think it is important to be disciplined in our preaching. Yeah. Yeah. I'll agree right before I get to the, uh, theological question i mean i think i think that thread is often just found in the text like whether it's talking about anthropology verse one christology verse two uh pneumatology verse three um our job as the preacher you can do it however you want you can preach those one point you can preach them all but the way i like to do it is is i probably will say something about all of those but my duties how how is paul or whoever making these connect uh so he's the one He's the the Holy Spirit is the one who's talking about those things within three verses, and so it's not a problem for the preacher to talk about those things in three verses. But the duty is show the people how Paul is connecting these things and how they are relating to one another. So that's where I'm at on it. But I've got all sorts of thoughts. That can be for another interview and another time. But here, dun dun dun, the mystery theological question. And I think Aaron only did one interview uh, when I was off on vacation. So I think Aaron, are we still on? Uh, the same one yeah. that we've been asking. Mm-mm. This is a new round. Is it? Yes, sir. Are you prepared? Okay. I, I, I'm prepared. Okay. Is it the Adam and Eve one? It, it is. Well, it's the yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay. Okay. So I guess I guess we're moving on. So the question is, and this <laughs> is this was uh, debated somewhat at seminary, uh, but what we want to ask guys over these next four episodes then is were Adam and Eve saved? So simple question. Oh yeah. We're, we're... Oh yeah. This is simple. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, you, you look, I mean, here's God, like, 
Um, he, he turns to Adam and his wife, Isha. By the way, it's, it's, it's Adam and Isha. Okay. You, you appreciate that? Like you understand her name is Isha. Mm-hmm. He, he looks at her and he says, in, in Genesis 2, he's like, your name shall be called Isha. And we always translate it woman. And it's like, ah, come mm-hmm. on, you guys. Just mm-hmm. like we don't call Adam man, but it means man. No, mm-hmm. it's Adam and Isha. And that's mm-hmm. so important because of this very question you're asking. So here they are. The, the God turns to them and he curses them, right? And the very thing, he, the last thing he says to Adam is, and you're going to go back to dust. You're going to go back to your body's going to return to dust. Now, he just said you're going to die. And then he turns to his wife and he's like, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And, and you know, yeah, we're going to die. No, no, no. We're going to call you Eve. We're going to call you life bearer, life bringer, because he's still stuck in Genesis 3.15. And he believes the gospel proclamation that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so her name goes from Isha to Eve. Uh, we see people's names being changed all the time, right? But people miss this one. And it's a significant one because it demonstrates Adam's faith. And then his wife, Eve now, what does she do? She bears her first child and she calls him gotten, received. Why? Because we have received the man from the Lord. Well, who's the man she's referring to? Genesis 3.15. She thinks Cain is going to be the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. By the time that these men grow up and, and the, the fruits of faith and repentance are evident in Abel's life and not in Cain's life, obviously, uh, when uh, Cain kills Abel and then they have another son, she calls him appointed or Seth. Why? Because God has appointed another for Abel. In other words, somewhere along the line, her faith directed her away from Cain and to Abel as the seed of the woman. Here's one who demonstrated, um, you know, in his life, in his faith in life, that he was going to crush that serpent. So, um, yes, they not only was Adam brought into a covenant of works, but Adam and his wife Eve brought into... Um, uh, I should say Adam brought him come to works and Eve through Adam, but uh, uh, Adam and brought into the covenant of grace, the first two recipients by faith. Yeah, I, Amen, uh, I say. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I know that there are those who kind of take a different um, opinion on this simply because whenever Adam is mentioned throughout scripture, it's generally in a negative sense. So all in Adam died, you know, first Corinthians 15, 22, but I think the, the name change um, is very significant, as you're pointing out. And, and not only that, but we see that the Lord covers them. Um, so there's there's a sacrifice to cover up their shame. Um, and so, yes, and Adam all die. But what's so beautiful about the gospel is that, you know, the man who brought a curse upon man was subsumed under the man who lifted the curse or um, paid for the curse, uh, Jesus Christ. So. Yeah, I, right. I'm, I'm in full agreement. Yeah, in Adam all die, and in the second Adam, Adam lived. Yep, amen. Adam lives. Adam lives, right. I should say. Yeah. Amen. All right, well, on that encouraging note, we'll uh, wrap up the podcast here. We've taken up a, a bunch of your time, so we appreciate you, Sean. If uh, you have liked this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you use. Uh, share this episode on 
social media. You can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com if you have questions that uh, you would like us to ask our pastors or if you'd like to recommend that we interview your pastor as well. If you find yourself uh, wanting to listen to more podcasts like this, you can look up the Jerusalem Chamber and hear um, Sean and some others talk about the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism. If you find yourself in Kokomo, Indiana on the Lord's Day, at that point, you might as well drive, drive, you know, 45 minutes northeast and come up to Marion. Whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God. 